0: Welcome to Forged in the Fires podcast with Fireman Rob. Being a fireman, father, veteran, husband, world record holder, and Ironman, he brings stories of experience to impact your life while challenging you to live it. What do you want from your life? Why do you want it? Are you willing to go through the challenges to get there? If you have the courage to take that first step, let this podcast be the catalyst to start your fire while you bring the resilience to make it continue to burn. Our lives are made up of moments called right nows. So let's get started. Forged in the Fires podcast with your host, Fireman Rob, begins now. We get the same.
1: Welcome back to Forged in the Fires podcast with your host, Rob Verhels, otherwise known as Fireman Rob. I have a special guest here. You know, this podcast is all about inspiring and motivating individuals and giving stories that can really relate. And my next guest is from Wisconsin, the great state,
2: Eric Beach. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Always having fun talking to you. Oh, it's a, it's a blast. And so,
1: I'll give you a kind of a background about Eric. Eric was a um, U.S. Army veteran, correct? And he did a tour in Iraq? Yeah, back in 2003. And uh, Eric, you know, he's, he's a, an amazing individual. He uh, took on a challenge of doing an Ironman, had never done a full Ironman before, but uh, went for the big one in Kona. Did that, uh, what was that, back in 2017, correct? Yeah. And then also he started this amazing group, that uh, the foundation that I'm a part of as well. But he's the co-founder of Project Echelon. Um, It's about educating, equipping, empowering veterans and their families and the communities to heal through self-discovery and physical activity. Now, Eric, you just have so many things, so many great stories that, you know, it's almost too hard to pick which one I want to (laughs) take and have you talk about. But let's start with
2: Project Echelon, because that, that is a, a passion of yours, correct? Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, it's one of those things that some of our greatest passions are born out of some of our lowest moments. And for me, coming out of the military, having kind of an identity crisis in the sense that I went to the military as an 18-year-old, kind of unfairly asking the military to teach me what a man was. And you don't really get the full picture. You're going to war, so you're not getting the totality of what makes a man a man or a woman a woman. And so I left it kind of more confused than I was when I went in. And certainly war had something to do with it. But I think the, the framework for my PTSD and confusion was laid early on in life. But the exacerbating symptom was, you know, the blast from an IED or the loss of life and, and things of that nature. And then thrust back into the civilian world with not really a bearing of where to go or what to do. And so I used drugs and alcohol to self-medicate because that's a successful plan for many. (laughs) You know, as you watch movies, right? right? That's what you do. But it worked for me in the sense that if I wanted to avoid nightmares and bad feelings, I would drink and do cocaine because I didn't sleep. And then when I did fall asleep after a bender, I wouldn't remember my dreams. So I was like, brilliant.
1: It was healing to you at that point.
2: It did. And that's the funny thing is, is when we heal, we just look for what works, even if it's very unhealthy, right. it seems to work. So we have security in it, even though it didn't make me feel any better. I still had bad moods. I had bad days. It was just covered by this chemical, right. you know? And so I ended up, you know, overdosing on drugs, uh, getting a court order to either go to a six months rehab or live with my parents at, you know, the age of, I don't know, 22 for six months. And they moved me to a different city. Uh, and I restarted, still made a lot of mistakes, and didn't really heal, but made some progress. So it was good enough for me. Uh, eventually, met my wife, and that's what uh, would really drive my sobriety, in a sense, away from drugs. Right. I still abused alcohol, but you know, I uh, was a respiratory therapist, lost my job twice, and that was the start of my spiral, where it really got dark right. again for me with my spouse and my uh, at the time two year old daughter, and. Jenna, my wife, was very gracious in stepping up for the family to to make some money by starting our own photography business. That led me to getting into video, which led us to Kentucky to go to school. And uh, I mean, we're glossing over a lot just to get to the the start of but it's
1: a it's a whole journey, and I think that's what's the amazing part is like you know, and you being able to talk about this. I mean, keep going because I I know what's coming, but uh, you know, for the listeners, just for you. To be able to get to this point of being able to talk about it, that's huge.
2: Oh, yeah. And that's where, you know, when we get to Project Echelon, that's been a huge part of it. You know, I, I used other programs to heal, like I got a service dog. Uh, you know, and this was on the other side of, you know, my actual suicide attempt in 2008, shortly before I met my wife, I think within a year, which I didn't tell her until this year. I didn't realize, she didn't realize how close in proximity my suicide attempt was to meeting her. You know, if she would have known wow. that and how I was doing drugs up to the week before I met her, you know, that might have sent her running. But right, you know, it's it's weird when you think about the timeline of these things. But, you know, I came out of these situations. We went to Kentucky, so I could go to film school is what it was. And that's where I had my biggest meltdown. Honestly, it was this moment in the truck, the production truck. I was directing an eight minute TV series. It wasn't a real one, but you had to script it. You had to work with the cast and crew. You had to direct it, and if you were a second or two over or under, you lost 10% of your grade. Because in network TV, oh, wow. live production you have to be on because they owe $250,000 worth of airtime to this advertiser, and if they cut two seconds off of it, well, they just lost a whole bunch of money. So it's very right. high stress. but you're in this truck, you've got your headphones on, it sounds, all of a sudden, I didn't realize it was gonna do this, it sounded just like being overseas in the comms on the radio. And you're in this truck, oh, wow. it's so familiar and i broke down and i ended up walking out of the truck and you know my teacher was gracious and let me do it again and i passed but there was so much in that time in life that broke me down to the point where i had to drop out of school and figure out what the hell i was going to do and at that point i had another plan to attempt suicide i wasn't actively going to do it i guess but i i would daydream about how i would do it you know i would go in the attic and pray that my wife would find me and nobody else, that my kids wouldn't, you know, dark places. And that came out in a meeting with one of our nurses and in the home care program from the VA uh, for the caregiver program. And that started me down a path because that was my wife's worst fear and watching her fall apart. But then she stepped up again and found me a program called Save a Warrior that was a five and a half day war detox program that got me on the straight and narrow. But I still felt like something was missing. And I kept wanting to go back to the military to be, you know, a police officer, CIA, SWAT, you know, covert ops, you know, all this masculine super hua stuff, right? It wasn't possible for me and my family. So I was like, well, do I really want to do PT at, you know, 45 in the morning? Probably not. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't really military. So what do I miss? And that was physicality. I figured physicality was something I could bring into my life now. And replicate some of the stuff I missed in the camaraderie of the military. And I always wanted to try triathlon. And so I didn't have the money to do it. So I didn't know how to. I started looking into it and I was like, the average triathlete makes $135,000 a year and the average triathlete spends $10,000 just to get into Ironman. And I was like, well, how am I going to do that? I don't even have a- <laughs> <laughs> Right. And so I. You know, talked to my wife and she supported it. And my mom actually signed me up for a $70 race, you know, a gift from mama for birthday. There you go. I needed a bike. I didn't know what to do, how to train. And then Eric Hill, who was my wife's. Okay, no, I got to do this right. Eric Hill's wife was my wife's friend in high school and they're both elite athletes. And so Jenna's like, hey, call. And Eric Hill is. He's the co-founder. Okay, co-founder. Yep. Yeah, two so, Eric's founding. It gets confusing in board meetings. I'll admit that. <laughs> and I'm like getting tasks. Eric, will you reach out and do the bunch easy to of blame cheetah? each other, right? Yeah, yeah. Eric thought like, you were going to do that. No, no, Eric. I'm going to go back to beach, like in the military, beach and hill. That's there you go. <laughs> but I reached out to him and he helped kind of demystify the sport. Tell me what I really needed versus what I wanted. Did I need the arrow helmet on my first triathlon on a sprint distance? Probably not. Probably not. You know, But you get wrapped up in that mindset of like, I got to look like the pros and stuff, but you don't necessarily need it. And so he helped demystify that. We, uh, you know, went out and campaigned for funds to afford some of the, you know, more expensive aspects of it in the future. But he told me, you know what, we just did in this training is we started a nonprofit. Would you want to do that? I was like, hell yeah. Because when you find something that works for you, you want to open that up to others. And so Project Echelon became this thing that, was modeled after my own journey from suicide to living, you know, and using endurance sport specifically for me to do that. And so, we started Project Echelon and have helped over hundred veterans get into cycling, running, uh, gym memberships. Uh, we have two people who've run Ironman since we've started Project Echelon, and and getting to help those veterans and their family members take that journey I took to health and healing through endurance sport has been one of the greatest rewards of my life.
1: Right. And it's a long-term, that's the best part about it is that, you know, a lot of people don't, uh, you know, PTSD is, it's got a lot of stigmas, you know, and I think, uh, you know, you said in one of your interviews about invisible wounds. And I think that's such a huge thing because we don't see it. And so it's hard to one, believe sometimes, and then two, to, you know, like, why don't these people just get over it and Mm. talk to me about the, it's daily challenge, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah. And it continues. It does. And that's when I, I reflected on, on this with my wife recently. As I, you know, you had spoke earlier about using your voice. And Project Echelon was that thing that gave me a platform to use my voice. And that's something I discovered was vital to my own healing. I think we all have our thing we need to embrace for us to grow. And for me, boldness uh, speaking and not worrying about what people were going to say about me or, you know, that I was wrong or. Whatever negativity come my way didn't outweigh the need for me to speak up. You know, I would tell myself, well, no one wants to hear what I have to say because everyone's heard it. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know all the, the tips and tricks. You just read that from a book or, you know, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to hear you, Eric. And that would hurt me. But now I know I need to speak up because what happens is when I don't, when I don't communicate to a friend like Eric Hill or anybody else who's, you know, striving, when I don't connect on a Facebook forum for Project Echelon, or something to that effect, and I don't write my book, I don't write my guidebook, I don't develop things and put myself out there, I regress so fast. It takes two days, three days. And all of a sudden, it's been three days and I'm sitting here depressed. And right. I'm just in this funk, I don't wanna work out, I don't wanna do anything. And so it's a constant process. And I think when you avoid those things, your mind goes back to this PTSD mindset you know, of post-traumatic stress disorder where our mind wants to keep us safe from the world, even though it has no idea what the real world is, because it's an ancient part of our brain saying, hey, if you stay home and stay quiet, nothing can hurt you, Right. even though that's like a real death to ourselves. But post-traumatic success development is where you actually avoid all of those things that want to keep you still and sitting and move forward. And if you don't do it, you'll get sucked back into the cave. And so for me personally, I've seen the greatest growth in the sense that my PTSD, my symptoms, instead of two weeks, are two hours. That's huge. You know, instead of a month, it's a day, and I can come back. And in that time, I'm talking to my wife. And that's a key because my wife wants growth for herself, too. Because the other side of PTSD, like you said, the invisible wounds, my wife said, at best, most times, PTSD is invisible to everyone except those in the family. She gets a front row seat. Right. And that damaged her. So I needed to give her space to heal too. And the fact that we're both healing together is my definition of love because love is the willingness to extend yourself or to yourself or to another, the gift of spiritual development, like getting out of her way and, and empowering her to grow and woodcraft or whatever she wants to do. It's right. the same thing she did when she said, sure, Eric, do an Ironman. And that's no small ask. Notice it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, would you call it healing, or is it building resilience? Because you know the the more that I've went through it as well is understanding that you know I don't think I'll ever be whole again. And that's that's I you know talking with a lot of people, they say you know you're not going to be. I don't feel whole. I don't feel like every day that I'm getting off on the right step, and it's building that resilience to make
2: each day count because it's worth it. Mm. and that's the concept that used to bother me so much when I was first starting when people would tell me but you're always going to have PTSD you're always going to I'm like no I can't I can't al- I have to surely I have to be able to to grow but the more I do it the more I've accepted that's true that's such a huge word that you just said acceptance acceptance and that's been the hugest the biggest part like when you the hugest <laughs> I didn't just say hugest I'm very smart saying with wording we're not editing that uh, either <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but I think the the uh, catalysts one was uh, resilience and one was ownership. right? And I think those two in pairing have been, I would say, my two biggest things. Because, you know, resiliency, I've had to, well, I should say Ironman has been a great opportunity, a proving ground, a, a training ground for resiliency. Because the race wasn't about a podium or a medal. It was about putting myself into the fires. And coming out like gold. Right. You know, it was a transformation. And the fact that if I can do this, if I can lean in on this ride that's three, five hours long, I can certainly go and finish the last bit of my writing that I have to get done for my project. Like, if I can put myself in this pain, this acceptable pain that's not life threatening, I can realize how tough I am. And that toughness can then. Transpose itself onto living situations in relationships, and not being intimidated by the really successful person I'm standing in front of, sharing my heart with, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting because I
1: was watching your Quest for Kona uh, video, and you guys can uh, also watch that on. It's on YouTube. You just uh, search Quest for Kona and uh, look up Eric Beach, and you can hear all about his story. And I'm not going to ruin the ending for people, but there was something interesting in there. You said um, it was right before the race, and you said. I'm dreaming so big, it scares
2: me. Mm. Tell me more about that, that statement, because that's a huge statement. Yeah, that, that's something that I've realized. If I'm not dreaming big enough to scare myself, I'm not dreaming big enough. You know, A, a dream is something that should be just out of reach of reality. And you know, I'm not saying I want to go to the moon, because I know what it takes to get there. I know the level of mathematics required. Right to get there. And I'm just not that guy. But what you do, when I do, when I dream, when I look at something, I look at something out of reach and it has to be big and it freaks me out so bad when I find my dreams. Like I have a couple right now that just, they are so scary, but all the steps required once you get that dream have to be something you're willing to do. And so if the dream is for me, man, wouldn't it be amazing to be a running back in the NFL? Okay. Well, I got to look at that. I've seen you run. That's not going to happen. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen my thighs and body no, it's, I'm way away. And I think I'm actually over the age limit yes. to enter the NFL. By, oh, by far. By far. Yes. So I'm not going to do that one. Like, that's a dream and it's, it's cool and all, but it's not one that I can pursue. I know that. But when I look at qualifying for Kona, that's so scary. And then I look at it like, could I do it? You have to look at the time commitment. You have to and, and, and I have to be willing to say, okay, for six years, for five or six years, I have to dedicate myself to this. Am I willing to do that? You know, in writing a book like yourself, you know, like right. That's scary to because people are gonna judge it, they're not gonna buy it. You know, what people would yeah. anyone even care? Who am I to put out a book? Who I'm not Ryan Reynolds or some huge celebrity, like why even that's all scary, but that's all overcomable obstacles for me. It's just, you have to figure out if the steps to get to that impossible dream are actually possible. And, you know, one of the great things, like, you know, what
1: you're saying was, you know, like, you don't want to go to the moon and and become a running back. Everything has to revolve around what your purpose is and what your passion is. And that's the hard thing, you know, going back to your military, when you got back, what was your purpose? And that was something that you were talking about is like, you didn't know how to find that purpose. And I, I think a lot of, veterans have that issue of you leave this it's not a system but it's a it's a brother and a sisterhood of i know my task i know my mission i know my objective and then you get into back into society and where is it you know yeah i think that's the hard thing I mean, can you tell us more about that part of it because like when you're talking about your dark moments when you are talking about suicide i think there's a lot of people that go there isn't any light. There isn't yeah. a path for me.
2: That's a big one that I've been dealing with now is how to communicate it. Because I've had, you know, in the past, people would ask me that question. And I'd be like, man, I, you know, I haven't really sat down and thought about it. It's like you just arrived to this point and you're like, how did I get here? And then you invest and look. And, and I was reading something and watching something. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Sebastian Younger, but he wrote a book called Tribe. Okay, And he talks about this idea that Western civilization is built and set up for depression. And what he means by that is when you look at the tribal situation or the setup, you know, that some indigenous tribes still live in, they're under 35 people. That's what he has found is the largest living unit that a person can live in and be happy. And so we don't have that, you know, but in 35 people, you know who you are. In a unit, you know, 70, I'm the number one man in the gun. I know my roles. I know my responsibilities. I know to shut up and wait for someone to tell me to, to sweep rocks or pick up cigarettes right. on me far in the motor pool. Like I know. And then I show up for PT. Like I don't have to think about any of it. I know who I am. I know where I stand. I'm a specialist. I'm a private first class. I'm a sergeant. I'm a first sergeant. Everything is so set up in a hierarchy that your group that you're in is seven people in your squad is, you know, 30 people in your platoon or what it's, right. it's a very small unit. And then that, 35 people in first platoon is one of three, which makes up the 70 or 90 people in your in your company or battery. Then your battalion is four. Everything is small and it breaks down to a very small, intimate unit. And then you go out to the civilization, wherein now my small town that I went back to was 67,000 people. That's a smaller town right. for you know the state where I was living in. And how do I fit into that? Where's my identity? And so I find it in my 12 friends who drink and party. Right. That becomes my identity. I know where I stand. I'm the funny guy in this group. I'm the veteran who we joke about, hey, we can get into a fight tonight because Beach is here. You know That that was my identity. And I was kind of a rebel in a sense and got pulled over, got out of a ticket or something, and that was heralded. I was scared, but I go to the party and people will be like, oh my God, that's so epic. Tell the story about that time you got pulled over and didn't get a DUI. That became my identity. Crazy. And so you have to find the right group of people and get away from your identity found in that group and that is so hard because you're breaking away from the pack which if you're a wolf means death right because you have to be in that pack so you're a, you're literally fearing death and breaking away from what you know to try to find through anonymity because that's what it is we're around people all day social media or on the streets we don't know any of them so we're by ourselves that's not how we were meant to be we we're meant to be in small groups so you have to find your tribe and project echelon is very much my attempt successfully i'd say to create tribes of people within the uh, I don't know tribe of endurance sport you know
1: right and it's not just triathlon i think that's a great thing for any veteran out there that's listening to this podcast and and says you know what i'm looking for my tribe i'm i'm looking to help my inner voice speak better to myself project echelon is is that outlet and you know the the thing with project echelon that i love is is that There's the ability to be yourself there. And I think that's the big thing is find your path through endurance sports and find others that have that same feeling that you may have.
2: Yeah, and that's very true. And that's another growing experience for me was the letting go of it has to be done the way I did it, that you have to follow my path. Because when you first find something that works, you kind of want to shove it down everyone's throat and not give them a chance to make it their own. And that's a growing experience. And I, I truly firmly believe that the physicality of what you do, and I'm saying it could be yoga. It could be a 5K. It could be you know just a running, a biking event. It could be swimming. It could be weightlifting, you know anything like that that moves your body and releases those natural chemicals and the endorphins and dopamine and all of that, it allows you a very wonderful partner in challenging some core beliefs you have about yourself. Because that's where it's really tough to sit with and challenge yourself with like, okay, I can't control anyone out there. right? So what's my part in this problem? What's the boundary I need to set that got me into this mess in the first place? And when you're out on a bike ride or running and you ask yourself and reflect on those questions or shortly after the end of the run, you have dopamine in your system. And you don't beat yourself up so much. You can ask yourself those questions and actually move on to and discover where you need to go for your next stage in healing. And you're not so alone because then you can throw that against a group and say, hey, I'm feeling this way. Is this valid? And then people can then say, hey, me too. That powerful word of me too is hard to find in in an echo chamber because
1: it's your own. And that ability to, or I guess you could say that courage to say that you feel this way because i think there's a lot of people you know myself included for a long time you feel like you're damaged and you don't want to say anything you don't want to say that you know i'm feeling this way uh because people are going to look at you different mm-hmm. and so you're you're saying how did you get to that point in that internal conversation because that was the same with me is like you get to that point of that internal conversation to say it's okay to be vulnerable and say that you're not feeling the best. You're not feeling like you are worth being
2: around. Yeah. And I think this harkens back to my favorite quote, which is from Marie Oliver or Mary Oliver. I'm sorry, which goes something to the effect of someone I loved once handed me a box of darkness and it took years, but in time I realized it too was a gift. And I'll break that down because it's a beautiful quote, but it sounds scary. Great quote. When I, left the military, to your point, I was labeled as no longer effective. That was the phrase that was stamped onto the paper because I had admitted I was having trouble sleeping and had PTSD. And my first sergeant really said, I have no use for you then. And that was really hard to hear from your purpose. And so I went through this process. And when I got to this point where I had a service dog and I really sat with this quote, it challenged me for ownership. What I realized was that I had blamed everybody else for my problems. And I needed to own my part in all that I did because there was nothing that I could do to anybody else that was going to make me feel better. And to get to that point, it took conversation. It took me, and, I, and I'll and i say that it was not forced on me, but you know, losing your job and having a wife who cares about you and pushes you and wants the best for you gave me the confidence and who didn't judge me like my wife i drug her out of bed in a nightmare you know woke up and she woke up to me like grabbing her ankles and dragging her out of bed that was scary right you know she didn't want that life but she didn't run away from me she the reason i married her when people say why did you fall in love with your wife was because she was one of the she was the only person in my life that didn't run away from me that's yeah and to have that kind of love was so empowering because i wanted to honor it and so i had to look at myself and open up to mentors, I had to read books and really own the fact that this is going to be painful because it's all on me. Nobody else can do this for me. The psychologist can't do it for me unless I open up and commit to it and, and I'm truthful for him and to her and say, this is my real feelings. This is how I'm really doing. If we gloss over it and we avoid those moments as uncomfortable as they are, they will always stay that way. We'll always stay in the dark. But the truth is, no matter how dark things are, there's always a candle light in the room of darkness. Sometimes it's right behind us, and no matter how much we look around for it, it keeps staying right behind us. And that's partly because we need to open up ourselves to allow someone to look over our shoulder and say, hey, dude, the light's right behind you. Oh, shoot, yeah, and then I can look over my shoulder and see it. Right. And sometimes that's a psychologist, sometimes that's a spouse, sometimes that's a friend, a mentor. But you have to be the one who opens up to them and saying, I need help because it's always there. That's the one thing I've learned after my suicide attempt in 2008. I've done things I never thought I would do. I've gone to France to race Ironman. Right. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That's not my story. You know, starting a nonprofit, all these things that I've done shouldn't have happened. And they all happened on the other side in of this suicide attempt. And it took my willingness to finally say, Hey bro, Hey sister, I can't find this light y'all keep talking about. Where the hell is it? Right. And I wanted that. And then I found it. And I've always been able to find it since because I know the tools I've developed over nine years or however long it's been.
1: I, I love that story because it is developing those tools and at the same time it's it's finding that light every day. And I and a lot of people are like, Oh, that's exhausting. I, I don't well, life is worth it. Like you said. Yeah. Who would have thought well, you would have never thought that you would have gone to France to race in an Iron Man. No. But No, It takes every single day, it takes work, it takes work. And, you know, talking to people, I know a lot of times people uh, hear these stories and they go, well, you know, I've never been in the military, I've never been in the fire service, you know, how does this relate to my life? And, you know, it doesn't have to be those extreme circumstances, you know, depression or, you know, fear is in everybody's life from Mm -hmm. teenagers to people in their 70s. But like you're saying, is it's that, that internal conversation. What would you say was the biggest thing for your internal conversation that you ask yourself maybe daily to get yourself on the right path?
2: The biggest thing, and I read a book called Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, and it's become one of my biggest tools. And what emotional intelligence is, is the ability to understand the truth of our emotions. And so I've, I've always asked myself this when I feel something. I use strong emotional response to be my guiding rod or divining rod. Instead of finding a well, I find the truth to what the emotion is trying to tell me. And so what I have told myself is when I feel something, I say, remember, feelings and emotions never lie, but they don't always tell the truth. So I have to look at the emotion that I'm experiencing because that's truthfully The most I get pulled out of my success is a strong emotion, whether it's anger or despair. Those are the two most common. And if it's despair, I tell myself, "Stop." Because, and I'll say this too, it takes time to catch it, Right. right? Because you don't like, oh, I'm I'm feeling despair. Let me sit down. Sometimes it's like two hours have gone by, and I'm like, whoa, 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 we're doing that thing again, guys, where we think everything's horrible and we're gonna fail, and now we're not gonna talk to anybody. So when despair is present. I always ask myself, what is it that I'm doing that I need to stop doing? Or what is it I'm not doing that I need to start doing? And what that is, is despair is this emotion that hits me and and us when, and I say despair because it's not depression. I say depression as a clinical uh, diagnosis. This is a chemical problem in the brain. So when we talk about depression, a lot of times we're talking about despair. So that's why I say despair. Despair is often the fact Our emotions trying to say, hey, you're being that person, that you aren't. You're wearing that mask or, you know, your old habits that prevent you from discovering your authentic self are present. So we're we're kind of trying to kill that false self and it's not really kill the physical self. That's where the call to suicide can get really muddled for me as I was trying to kill the fake person I had become, not my real self. That's a huge statement. I love that. Yeah. So that's what I always ask myself is what is it that's trying to die in me or grow in me? And sometimes it's an eating habit. You know, I need to stop the way I'm eating because I'm not going to get to my goals if I don't. But I have to understand why do I eat the way I do? Or, you know, what is it I'm trying to avoid through food? Or what is too hard? And, and then it's usually, hey, you're putting yourself out there. So we're trying to protect you from it, man. And I'm like, no, I don't want that protection. That's like death to me. I have to go do this. So right. I feel that I can make choices or if I'm angry, you know, what, what is it that I'm angry about? What unmet expectation is happening? Why do I deserve it? Like I would get angry about being with elite athletes through Project Echelon because they're so good and I'm so not. And then <laughs> I'd say like, but why? Why do you feel entitled to it? You know, like you're not training like them. You're not eating like them. You're not recovering like them. Why should you perform like them? And then you have to own that. That's where ownership comes in where it's like, okay, scale back to reality. What steps are you willing to do What are you willing to do to get out of the despair and actually make forward progress? So that becomes my biggest thing. And I'll tell you this, a lot of times what we do if we're willing to sit and track it back is a decision we made before the age of eight. So a lot of our worldview is formed by age eight or nine. So if you've never been to war, it doesn't matter. I didn't go to war at eight. Some people were in abusive households, whether their parents weren't there for them or whether their parents were there but were verbally and physically abusive, or whether their parents were overindulgent and gave them everything they wanted. Those are all things that set us up to be very confused and very uncomfortable in this world. Right. And it's just being okay. I loved what you said earlier. It's that
1: acceptance. It's, it's really the ownership of you are you, and the person that's going to change you is you. And taking that step, and I think you know, Eric, your story is amazing. And what would you say, and this is just a random question here, but what would you say your greatest accomplishment to date is?
2: Hmm. That is a great question. <laughs> we'll come back next week. So, uh, no way. No way. I'm putting you on the hot seat. <laughs> it's, it's, that's a beautiful question because I would have said Ironman France initially. right? But what I would say... My greatest achievement has been is sitting with my own emotions and owning and burning my victim card. That's great. For me to stop blaming everybody else, for me to figure out not that the situation happened and saying, "Oh, this person abused me." So cool, that had to happen. You know, it's not that. It's that understanding that the box of darkness, back to the Marie Oliver quote that I was handed is my greatest empowerment, not because it happened, but because it did happen. And I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to empower myself to help somebody else who was handed the same box of darkness because people can't be handed abuse, can't be handed trauma and be helped by someone who hasn't experienced that same thing. So my realization that my greatest empowerment is the fact that I've survived the fires of what I've been through in my life and now giving it back because I'm willing to sit with it, agree with it, hear it, and say it happened. How can I prevent it from happening in the future? And what can I do to learn about myself because it happened? And how can I give that to somebody else? That is my greatest achievement in this life.
1: That's wonderful. And you continue to you know give and give and give. And I, I want to tell any veteran that's out there, or, or even other individuals that are struggling to find that, that calm, that peace, that uh, contentment, to go to that projectechelon.org. It's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-E- C-H E L O N dot org and you guys have information on there. You can also contact uh Eric and Eric. Uh that's not confusing at all. Nope. And find that self-discovery. Find that new path that you can uh, you know, in essence, travel down that journey path that uh Eric Beach has traveled down and he can help you to find that new path that's gonna lead you to your potential because everybody has their own journey. So Eric, I have to say, just listening to you today, that it's just an amazing thing. Uh, I'm constantly trying to get better and listening to individuals like yourself and uh, being able to help other people. Just an amazing,
2: amazing journey you've been on. Well, thank you. And, and I appreciate your work, too, because it's people like yourself that create systems to help people unpack their hurts and hangups and move forward that really make it accessible and easier for someone who doesn't know where to start. You know, so I appreciate the efforts that you've been in pursuing as well. Yeah,
1: I appreciate it. So now we've come to the end and I've got three questions that I ask you. Actually, you've answered one of them, then we have a rapid round of questions Ooh. for you. This is this is exciting. There's no pass fail. There's been a lot of fear of that in the past. <laughs> so here's my first question to you. What is one thing you haven't done but is outside your comfort zone?
2: Hmm. One thing I haven't done. Oh, man, I want to say this This will sound vain, but I want to go on an audition for a movie because that sounds wildly uncomfortable to put myself in front of someone and actually let them judge me based on my appearance and my ability to embody a character. Are you thinking
1: a romantic comedy?
2: You know what? I don't think <laughs> I never saw myself as a leading man. Maybe maybe like the best friend.
1: OK, OK. <laughs> so like you get Goodwill Hunting and you'd be uh, Ben Affleck. I'll be Ben Affleck to whoever's Matt Damon. Sure. I like it. I like it. All right. The second question is always your quote, but you went over that. I love that quote. Can you give us that quote again? Because I think it's a great one for
2: those individuals seeking a little clarity. Yeah. Mary Oliver said, once someone I loved handed me a box of darkness and in time I too realized it was a gift. And just to clarify what that means is that the traumas in our lives do happen. We're not excusing them, but we're saying we own the fact that they happened. And it's now on us to figure out how to use it to empower or disempower ourselves and empower ourselves through, you know, healing and helping somebody else who has been handed that same box of darkness, that same trauma. Fantastic. And here's
1: the last question. This one's going to be interesting. If you could pick to have coffee with three other people at a firehouse table, now a firehouse table, nothing is off the table. You can talk about everything. It's joking. Who would it be and why?
2: Let's see. I would have to say first would be Mirinda Carfrey from, for those who don't know, uh, one of the, Rennie. Yeah, Rennie, one of the greatest Ironman triathletes of all time. And subsequently, she is the reason I wanted to do Ironman because I saw her overcome a 14 minute deficit on the run to beat Daniela Reef. And I forget if it was a 2014 Kona World Championship, but there was something about her, her personality, her running technique that just inspired me. And I knew. I had to, to do the sport. So to be able to sit down with her uh, and talk would be incredible. That's a great choice. Yeah. Yeah. Two more, two more. I think that's my only Ironman choice actually. Yeah. And then I guess I would, uh, can they be, do they have to be living? No, no, they don't. Okay. I would say Carl Young, uh, the, Oh, wow. Yeah. The I mean, the psychoanalyst therapist, uh, which was Freud's counterpart, but he and Jungian psychology have been a huge tenet to my own healing and understanding of the subconscious or the unconscious mind, the collective unconscious, and how to reintegrate different parts of ourselves, emotional intelligence, and all that kind of stuff stems from him. So I feel like he had so much more to offer that, you know, but you have to, you get old and you die. So I'd be curious what volume two would be <laughs> what he's learned in the <laughs> And then... Um, I think the last one, oh, it's, it's really a toss-up between two. Um, uh, it's in the movie, so it would either be Ron Howard or Ryan Reynolds. And I think oh, wow. I'd, I'd probably, I'll just, the reason for both is Ryan Reynolds seems like the ultimate actor, humorist type person that's right. humble. And I just really want to know how that works, how you can go to that level of achievement and notoriety and still stay seemingly amazing. I don't know, it's yeah. just a like person I could be friends with versus the elitist like a Tom Cruise or something like that, where I'm like, yeah, we're, pro- we're not going to be buddies, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> and Ron Howard, he just gets movies in a different way. I think it'd be really fun to work with him on a movie if I wrote a screenplay. Right. Because he gets story, and I don't know. I'd want to pick his brain about that. So I, I, that would round up my three.
1: That's a good coffee ho- uh, a firehouse uh, coffee session. I think a bunch of them would talk a lot with uh, enough coffee in them, too.
2: Yeah, <laughs> they're diverse enough. It'd be interesting to see the common thread. It would be me. I guess if I think about it. Oh, by far, <laughs> it is your coffee table.
1: <laughs> All right, now we got the rapid round. I'm gonna just give you two things, and you just gotta pick one. Okay. Okay. All right, here it goes. Ready? Mm-hmm. Paper or plastic? Paper. Super salad. Soup. McDonald's or Taco Bell? That's the hardest one. Uh, Taco Bell. Camping or hotel? Hotel. Flyer drive.
0: Mm
2: fly sleep in late or wake up early sorry Jocko Willinek. sleep in late
1: <laughs> <laughs> run or walk late. so i get up late i like it i like it. i'm the same way yeah. run or walk oh run partly sunny or partly cloudy partly cloudy ah yeah. fire or water water sorry use porta potty Or continue to drive, run to a physical bathroom? Uh, Port-a-potty if I'm lucky enough. That a boy. Coke or Pepsi? (laughs) Coke.
2: And go big or go home? Go big. One of my friends said, bite off more than you can chew and figure out how to swallow it later. I love it. Well, Eric Beach has
1: been a fantastic journey here. I I appreciate everything that you have. If you want more information from Eric Beach and uh, his story, go to projectechelon.org. He's also a uh, film producer. If you're looking for something, it's Vera Volte, right? Yeah, Vera Volte, Productions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is a fantastic individual. Thank you so much for your time, Eric, today, and uh, definitely look forward to talking to you again.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a blast. All right,
1: thanks for listening. It's been Fireman Rob, Forge in the Fires.
0: Thanks for listening and supporting the Forge in the Fires podcast with Fireman Rob. Remember, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast and please share this episode with a friend or family. To find out more about Fireman Rob or reach out about a question, go to www.firemanrob.com. Until next time, live your life forged in the fire.